Readings from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord, If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But, as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Well, thank you very much, Val. Good evening, everyone. It's great to see us, uh, see you all tonight. Um, I think tonight will be a challenge for two reasons. One, uh, it's really hot. Uh, you're tired, I'm tired. Uh, secondly, a challenge, because this is a really tricky passage, and it's really tricky, particularly pastorally, because there are really live issues in this that are really important for many people here. And so we need God's help as we come to it. I always think there are three ingredients for a sermon to be effective, because it's one thing just to speak and you to listen. Three ingredients for a sermon to be effective. The first is that the preacher needs to be faithful to God's word and teach what God has said, not teach our own ideas. The second is that the Spirit of God has to be working through the preaching. It's what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones called uh, divine unction. The Spirit of God takes his word and places it in our heart so that it's not like water for ducks back that we hear and is just lost. The third thing, and this is a responsibility of the listener, is that the Spirit of God is at work in the heart of the listener. See, preaching is not all about the work of the preacher. It's also about the work of the listener. So let's pray that together we can work hard as we speak, as we listen, that God's word would shape our hearts and help us, particularly on a hot evening. Let's come before him now. Father, thank you that we read in your word that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and correcting, rebuking and training in righteousness, that we might be fully equipped for every good work. And Lord, we all want to be better equipped to serve you in the week ahead, to do those good works that you've prepared in advance for us to do. So we pray you take this passage and teach us how it can be relevant to us, how it is relevant to us. And as we've just sung, please place these truths deep within our hearts that we might help one another to honour you in our relationships. Amen. Great. Well, well as he said, uh, the third one in, in our little mini-series in 1 Corinthians 7, before um, the, that the series continues. Um, I hope we've seen that there were, were... Corinth was a very messy place. The church was therefore a very messy place. And we've seen a number of these struggles. But particularly as we look at this passage, two real problems that were going on in Corinth 
when Paul wrote to the Corinthians. The first was the prevalence of divorce. I read this week that uh, one Jewish historian recorded that one of the rabbinical schools, the schools that the rabbis taught in, wrongly, but said this. This is what the rabbis were teaching. And this is uh, clauses that allow a husband to divorce his wife. And it's unbelievable. Uh, one Jewish school taught this. A wife, a husband can divorce his wife if A, the wife talks too loudly, and B, if she burns the supper. And guess what? They didn't even have to have a written notice. They just had to speak in front of two people as witnesses, and that was enough. And you laugh almost, and we think that's shocking, but this was what was going on in Corinth. The second problem is a broader problem we've looked at already, this um, idea that in Corinth, many of the people were dividing the spiritual world from the physical world, and they were seeing the physical world as unimportant the spiritual world is very important and so some people were saying well marriage is an earthly pursuit so so i ought to just divorce and forget my marriage to pursue more great spiritual things and of course the bible says you don't divorce the spiritual and the physical all of life is physical all of life is spiritual so these were two problems that were going on i'm not sure it's that different today think about the disposability of marriage I think I've told you this story before, but 10, 11 years ago, when I was playing rugby in Oxford, we were playing an away game. I was sitting on the coach, two guys in front of me. One was a 19-stone prop called Eggy. And I knew that because I played flanker, and my shoulder scrummed down against his very sizable thigh. I've never forgotten Eggy. Forget his thigh, but listen to the words he spoke. I was just eavesdropping on a conversation he had with the guy in front of him. He was getting married three weeks later, and I remember him saying, we're going to have separate bank accounts, because when the marriage ends... I don't want her having all my money. Now, I don't think he was going into marriage expecting it to fail, but he certainly wasn't going into it expecting that it would last. And that's just a casual conversation between two friends of mine 10 or 11 years ago. Uh, In 2015 in Europe, there were 2.2 million marriages, and they were just short of 1 million divorces. Uh, 2017 was the first year in this country where more children were born outside of having married parents, male, female, husband and wife because of cohabitation, because of non-marriage, because of divorce and because of the change in the eyes of the state uh, of what marriage is. In February this year, uh, marriages between a man and a woman were at an all-time low since records began. So this is the culture we're living in. Marriage is incredibly disposable. Divorce is very easy. And so we're actually not that far removed from the culture in Corinth at all. Um, And this is a difficult subject to look at, um, partly because the the teaching on divorce is complex. We're doing a sort of study day shortly as pastors to try and understand this better. But but we'll say that even when you get your theology, you pray right on this issue of divorce, applying it in all the situations of life, applying it in the situations of particularly remarriage is hugely complex and nothing that you can learn at a theological college. So this is a challenging passage. Um, It's also challenging because it speaks about the struggle that many people have where a married person who's a Christian marries someone who's not a Christian. I've had someone in my living room from this church this week in floods of tears, been married for decades, talking about the pain of being married to someone who doesn't share their love in the Lord, despite the love they have for their spouse. And thirdly, I think it's pastorally really hard because, of course, we want to uphold biblical teaching, but we want to be pastorally sensitive. We don't want to come across as judgmental. How do you tread that very fine line? And so this is a challenge. 
So before we look specifically, and I want to focus particularly tonight on the issue of the person who's married to someone who's not a Christian, and speak into that because our passage does. Just a few kind of background foundational principles that I hope might help us. Um, The first one is this. Just have a look at the end of our passage in verse 39. The first principle that we want to sort of lay on the ground is that the Bible is really clear that Christians should only marry Christians. You see that little phrase there, they must be in the Lord. That's not a suggestion from Paul. He's saying, this is wisdom from God. Now, those who are married here will know that marriage is hard enough, let alone when two people can pull in different directions. The Bible's really clear on this, and we would be foolish if we think that, in our wisdom, we can be the exception to the wisdom of God on this issue. Of course, the grace of God can be applied where there have been situations where this hasn't happened. And of course, we will all know of kind of success stories where a person who's not a Christian and a person who is a Christian come together, and maybe marriage has worked, maybe very happily. But we need to be really careful here because there are far, far too many stories of people who've been spiritually shipwrecked or perhaps lost their spiritual fervor because they've been unequally yoked. When God gives this command through Paul, he's not being a killjoy. He's being a loving father who knows what's best for us. I had to learn this the hard way as a teenager at school where I pursued relationships with girls who weren't Christians. And I was a Christian, but still kind of working things through. But it never worked, and it never was going to work, because deep down, my greatest love was for the Lord. And if I was joined and married someone who didn't have that same love, as fun as it could have been, as, as happy as perhaps it could have been, we'd never have pulled in the same direction. And I've now come to see the wisdom of God, and I'm thanking that I've married someone who does know the Lord and helps me to follow the Lord. But secondly, this isn't just about being obedient Honouring God is what really matters. And so even when marriages can work between a believer and an unbeliever, it's not just about it working or not working. It's about am I honouring the Lord in my relationships? That's the first principle. The Bible's really clear on this. We need to help each other um, to hold that truth really firmly. The second foundational principle is that Jesus is really clear that marriage is for life. When Jesus taught on marriage and on divorce in Mark 10, the words are on the screen. He spoke these words, which you'll know. For this reason, quoting from Genesis, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And in the the marriage service, when there's pastors, we marry people and you hold the hands together and you make that declaration. For me, that is the most powerful moment in a marriage service. It's a wonderful wonderful moment, but a, a scary one too. What God has brought together, may no one separate. Of course, we know the prophet Malachi speaks about God who hates divorce. Because it's breaking apart what God has brought together. Marriage for Christians is not just two people coming together. But it's putting God at the center of that relationship. And so where there's divorce, it's breaking apart something that God has brought together. So the Bible's really clear that Christians should marry Christians. The Bible's really clear that marriage is for life. The Bible also gives some exceptions for divorce, but they're not the exceptions that society gives. They're very narrow exceptions, all surrounding the issue of a Greek word, pornea, that speaks of marital unfaithfulness, primarily sexual unfaithfulness. And this is why it's a very pastorally difficult issue. Um, But the Bible speaks about it in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19. But outside of those exceptions, which were given because of the hardness of heart, the Bible's really clear that divorce is not ever going to be right. 
Another foundation is that remarriage outside of death or in the few exceptions of marital unfaithfulness or adultery is also not honoring to God. And this is a real challenge and something we've been battling with as pastors because I think divorce, the teaching on divorce in the Bible is perhaps simpler and easier to apply. Remarriage is hugely complex. But I fear that way too many churches are becoming way too lapsed on remarriage. Simply saying, well, it hasn't worked and God is gracious, let's just allow remarriage. And I think we need to be careful that we seek to obviously pastorally apply biblical teaching on this subject. And that's a challenge. Also worth saying that 1 Corinthians 7 is not everything that the Bible has to say about the issue of divorce or remarriage or mixed marriages. And so we mustn't sort of build a theology on one passage. We need to think carefully about all the passages that speak into this issue and help us. And so we can't look comprehensively at this very, very complex issue of divorce and remarriage just because of this passage here. And finally, and here's a bit of hope, last sort of foundation stone in. um, Divorce is not the unforgivable sin, such that if a person is divorced... They uh, fall out with God in a way that they can't be brought back into a relationship with him, such that God is no longer interested in them, such that God can't restore brokenness or for fruit and joy to come again. And we need to cling to that truth and not just cling to the challenges. There's some foundation principles which I hope are familiar to us but we can consider. But I want to particularly tonight look at just a few verses that speak about this idea and the context of where there's a believer married to an unbeliever. And I guess there are two reasons why this situation can come together. One can be a Christian person marries someone who's not a Christian. The other way, which is often quite common, is where two people marry, neither are Christians, and one later comes to faith. And this passage gives us great wisdom to know what on earth do you do in that situation? Because... Once you become a Christian, you would say, well, now, if I was to do it all over again, I wouldn't marry someone who's not in the Lord. But I am married, so where do I go? What do I do? So just three things we'll look at tonight. Here's the first one. This applies to uh, all marriages. Commitment to marriage is something that really honors God. Have a look at um, chapter 7, verses 10 to 11. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does... She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. What Paul is doing here is he's affirming that marriage is for life. He's affirming a wonderful covenant promise of God and just trying to uphold marriage. And you see it again at the end of our passage. You notice in verse 39 and 40, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes but he must belong to the Lord. So here it's speaking of the context where there's been a death and someone is widowed and that marriage bond therefore has been broken because of death and there is freedom then to marry again should a person choose to. Just as a small aside, I don't know if you were slightly puzzled with the reading where in verse 12 uh, Paul says, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, but in verse 10 he had said to the married I give this command not I but the Lord it's almost I've heard some absolutely awful preaching on this where basically the person has sort of said here we have uh, Jesus who speaks and here you have the apostle Paul who speaks and they contradict one another and of course we must believe in the words of Jesus or some say we don't believe the words of Jesus we believe the words of Paul because he spoke later if all scripture is God breathed we cannot separate all these phrases mean is simply in the former in verse 10 Jesus spoke about these things and in verse 12 
Jesus didn't directly speak about these things, so Paul gives wisdom. But it's not that one bit of wisdom is elevated above the other, because Paul's teaching is equally as authoritative as Jesus' teaching. And that's a really important principle. So commitment to marriage is something that really honors God. So this is a challenge for all of us. If you are married, staying married and staying faithful to your husband and wife is something that gives God great joy. And particularly when our marriages can be strained at different times, pursuing that marriage in love and commitment and forgiveness honors God. So if you're married, we need to pray for one another that we would stay committed to that which God is committed with. If you're not married, please pray for those who are. Because in the prevalence of society where marriage is incredibly disposable, it's a very powerful witness when marriages stay together. It's not long before we celebrate Ozzy and Mary's 50th wedding anniversary. And there are many in the church who've been married for 50 years, some 60 years. I'm incredibly humbled, and I think it's the most incredible example of the grace of God when people stay together for those decades. And it's a wonderful tribute to the grace of God. And we need to uphold these things and continue to pray for them. Well, commitment to marriage honors God, I guess, big picture. Paul also speaks in this passage about commitment to mixed marriages honoring God. I'm not talking about racially mixed or anything like that. Simply here, a situation where there's a believer and an unbeliever. And Paul does speak into it, and he says, when we are committed to a mixed marriage, that honors God. Have a look at uh, verse 12. Uh, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Of course, if you have a a Christian marriage, Christian man, Christian woman, and they're married, their focus should be on remaining married through everything, because it's the grace of God that will keep a marriage together. But even here, Paul is saying, listen, just because perhaps... Two unbelievers marry and later one comes to faith. Paul's not saying, just because now they're unequally yoked, just dissolve the marriage. Because God has brought these two, or these two have come together. And Paul is affirming, if it's possible, continue in this marriage commitment. But help me out here. Then we come to a really puzzling verse. Verse 15. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. Now, we're going to look at this verse to try and understand it, but I also want to help us to think, how do we address a verse like this when we read it in Scripture? Because I suspect your mind is going, and you're thinking, that's odd. How on earth can this be true? He has been sanctified by his wife? How does that work? Can someone help me? Throw out the question that you're asking about this verse. Why is it puzzling you? Yeah. The obvious question is, surely this husband is not now a Christian just because they have a believing wife or acceptable for God. It doesn't make any sense because we know from the rest of the Bible, it's only people who put their trust in Christ are right before God. So here you've got a dilemma. You read something and go, hang on, that doesn't connect with everything I know in the Bible. What do I do? Well, we need to look at elsewhere in the Bible. We need to look at the immediate context. How does verse 16 help with the dilemma? See, this verse teaches us, doesn't it, that, and it's really clear, that the unbelieving partner is not saved by association. In other words, here's a believing wife. She's married to an unbelieving husband. 
The Bible is not saying this unbelieving husband is now a Christian on the basis that they're married to a believer. It can't mean that because we know what it means to have faith in Christ. So what does it mean? I think Paul here is speaking about the sense, when he puts it in the past tense, has been sanctified or made holy, it's talking about the very real and special influence that the believing partner can have on the unbelieving partner. Not in the sanctifying sense that they are in Christ, they trust in Christ and now are Christian, but in the sense of being salt and being light in that relationship. Notice chapter 1, verse 2. Go back a little bit in Corinthians. Paul speaks to this church, and he talks about this church that have been sanctified, called by God together with everyone else in the name of Jesus. It's this idea that Christians have been set apart from God. You get again in chapter 6, verse 11. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. And so Paul here is saying, listen, there is a very special thing about a person who is a Christian. And this Christian wife doesn't automatically make the unbelieving husband a Christian, but there's a very powerful influence that they can have. Uh, And Paul wants to talk about that. It's the sense that the the believer's faith can rub off on the unbeliever in a very powerful way. And think about it. If you have an unbelieving husband and an unbelieving wife, there's not going to be the grace of God rubbing off on each other in the relationship because there's no grace of God in that relationship other than the common grace of God because he doesn't believe and she doesn't believe. But where he doesn't believe but she does believe, or the other way around, there's a very powerful impact of that. Another passage perhaps you're thinking of on this. It should be on the screen, but I've forgotten to put it up. So why don't you turn to 1 Peter, chapter 3, and we'll just pause here for a second. One Peter chapter three. I'm just going to read the first two verses. That wives in the same way be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So there's another passage that speaks about the very powerful witness of a believer or an unbeliever but and I've spoken to people in the church this week who are in this relationship in one sense this is really challenging because some will say yes but I've sought to be a faithful witness for decades I've prayed for my husband I've prayed for my wife for decades and it hasn't made a difference so it's, it's kind of nice theology but I don't see the fruit of this this is where you're kind of wrestling I guess a couple of things to encourage you in one is Trust that you will be having a far bigger, making a far bigger difference than perhaps you see. Uh, you know, when um, think of uh, when you're witnessing to an unbeliever, and sometimes you get all this kind of hot air and anger and frustration from the unbeliever, and they appear not to show any interest at all. We never know what's going on quietly under the skin. I remember when I was a teacher up at rugby school. I had a little Bible study. One boy came, really antagonistic, uh, called me all sorts of things, sort of in jest, and was winding me up. That night in the boarding house as the boys were going to bed, the boy who had been mocking me for all the stuff that I was teaching was found under his duvet reading his Bible in secret. All this stuff about not believing, but there was something going on. And so I just, as an application, if you're seeing no fruit, just trust that you will be having more of an influence than perhaps you realize. I don't say that in a sort of flippant, sort of throwaway way, but just I think we need to trust in God's sovereignty and wisdom because it's not always what we see that is happening.
Here's a second thing for you to reflect on. Every moment you have sought to be godly, that has really honored God. And if a husband or wife has not appreciated your love for the Lord, God has appreciated it. And he looks at you and he smiles every moment when you've forgiven, every moment when you bit your tongue rather than latching, lashing out. Every moment you've shown patience. And this is true, in, of course, in any relationship, in any marriage. God sees it and he's honored. And so when you say, my prayers have been a waste of time, my spouse hasn't changed at all, they've not been a waste of time. Because God has seen your prayers and it's delighted in him. Here's a third little encouragement for you. It's made no difference at all. Here's a question to ask yourself. Has wrestling with God in prayer for a loved one who doesn't know the Lord changed you at all? taught you to be more dependent on the Lord taught you to be more dependent on him in prayer has it humbled you has it grown your godliness as you've had to bite a lip as you've had to be patient as your own desires have been stripped away at times suddenly as you look at some of these positive things you see God is at work even in the hardest of relationships I was really humbled this week uh, hearing one testimony and reading another of people in this church who are married to unbelievers who speak of the real challenge that it can be as well as of course the joys it's not all difficult Uh, some of those people are in this room others will probably listen in times you have been a massive encouragement to me as I've heard you as you and I've read the stuff you've written and I pray that you will be a witness to others because you are having an impact on this church in your display of faithfulness And that's commendable in the sight of God. Well, commitment to marriage honors God. Commitment to mixed marriages honors God. But there's just a little verse here, which I think is a a verse, verse 15, that's been inserted, I think, pastorally from Paul, just to help in these marriage situations. And it comes here in verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Now, why is this verse a real puzzle? We've, we've seen 1 Corinthians 7 is all about faithfulness to being married, faithfulness to being single, pursuing by the grace of God commitment. And suddenly here, it's almost like a bit of a throwaway line. If the unbeliever leaves, well, let them go. It doesn't seem to make any sense. I think what Paul is getting at here is the sense that where there's a mixed marriage, a believer and an unbeliever, if the unbeliever isn't going to continue faithfully in the marriage and doesn't want to be married, there does come a point when it perhaps becomes unwise to keep fighting for the marriage because it just creates so much tension and difficulty. Paul is just saying it's not going to work but this is the thing we've got to be really careful of this is not a passage, this verse that speaks of a Christian and a Christian where they're struggling and one just wants out the verse doesn't say if, verse 15 if one of the spouses wants to leave let it be so because we're called to peace the sense that here you've got a Christian marriage and it's just causing argument after argument the best thing therefore is just to divorce because God wants peace it very specifically is saying if an unbeliever leaves we've got to read that and be careful Paul is saying there comes a point if in a mixed marriage one insists on not continuing in the marriage it's not right necessarily to pursue the marriage unless you feel you can and I think it's just given as a pastoral note to stop the person who is a Christian in that marriage feeling an unhealthy weight of tension and responsibility for keeping together that which humanly speaking cannot be kept together 
If the grace of God is not at work in the unbeliever, it becomes very, very difficult for the relationship to function at all. But of course, if the believer is able to continue committedly married to the unbeliever, and if the unbeliever is happy to continue committedly married to the believer, that honors God, and that marriage should be prayed for and encouraged and held together. You saw verse 16, we've already looked at it. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? I think it's the sense that where a marriage, there's been irretrievable breakdown in this unmixed marriage. The believing husband or the believing wife cannot take ultimate responsibility for the salvation of their spouse because it's not their work at the end of the day anyway. It's God's. This is just Paul's wisdom to help us. As we come to a close, I just want to leave some specific applications. The first set of them are specifically for those who are married to unbelievers, but they're helpful for us all to hear because they'll help us to know how we can better support those in that situation. Uh, And the last few applications are specifically for those of us who aren't married to unbelievers. If you are in a marriage where your spouse doesn't know and love the Lord, I want to really encourage you to cling to the grace of God. And, and surround yourself with people who adorn the grace of God. Not people who will judge you or make flippant co- comments, but people who will just love you and nurture you and encourage you. You'll never be the perfect example. We've seen that passage in 1 Peter about uh, living a life that adorns the gospel. You'll never be that perfect person that perfectly adorns the gospel. And so live by the grace of God. Be everything that you can be by his grace. But when you fail... Don't beat yourself up on Julie, because you've got to remember that marriage is spiritual warfare as much as human warfare sometimes. And the devil wants to divide and discourage, to cling to the grace of God. Secondly, um, trust in the goodness of God, despite the pain. Again, that can sound a little bit flippant, but if we don't regularly speak to ourselves the goodness of God, we can get caught up in a cycle of resentment. That's not just true in marriage, it's true in life. To speak to ourselves the goodness of God, to speak to each other the goodness of God, can protect our hearts from resentment. And we need to therefore do that. Think of the things that are good in your marriage. Think of things that are good in your life. Because without that, you can get overwhelmed with the things that can be challenging. Uh, This was wisdom from one person I spoke to this week, but to be shared more widely. uh, Build on what you do have in common. If, if faith is the area which causes the real rub and friction, there will be areas of life where you have something in common. You can build on that. Walks together, perhaps. Uh, a hobby, an activity, something you enjoy watching on, on the TV. Yeah. And encourage you also to put your ultimate hope in Christ and not in the salvation of your spouse. Of course, you long for your spouse to come to Christ. We pray with you, alongside you, to continue to pray faithfully for that. But your ultimate hope, and this is true for all of us, mustn't be in the salvation of a loved one. Not your ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope must be in Christ. And this is another one. This was shared with me, and I think this is really wise. Uh, For those who are married to unbelievers, just be aware of kind of um, sarcasm or pushiness. It might be something like this. A husband or wife has given you a really, really hard time for reading the Bible at home. Really hard time for many, many years. And suddenly you see them with a Bible in hand. The first thing that wants to come to your mind is almost like a little sarcastic remark. Oh, I didn't think you wanted to read the Bible. But maybe in that moment, it's the first time in this person's life where the grace of God has just done something. And they are picking up their Bible. And that moment of sarcasm, just in frustration, could be the thing that really dampens what God is doing in that moment. 
Uh, equally pushiness, just unduly pushing a husband or a wife to want to come to church all the time when it's not where they're at. It just needs that wisdom, doesn't it? So I pray there might be a few applications there to help you if you're in this situation. But a couple of applications for us all. I want to encourage us as a church to be a church that really seeks to support and pray for marriages, particularly where a person is married in a committed way to someone who doesn't know the Lord. Because that brings, it brings a particular tension. And if you have, know someone in the church in that situation, why don't you commit to praying for them every day? It'd be a wonderful encouragement for them to know that you pray for them. And equally, we need to all be sensitive to some of the challenges that being in a, uh, a marriage where one's a believer, one's not, can bring. And some of these things were shared with me this week. Um, we might know some of these things, but some of these things might just wake us up to the reality. For some people, just coming to church is a really big deal. It's not possible just to come to church morning and evening and every other church thing going on. Just coming once on a Sunday often is a major source of tension at home. It needs wisdom. For some, reading the Bible at home is a real challenge. Have to read it in private early in the morning or when a husband or wife isn't looking. It's nothing to do with being ashamed. It's simply because reading the Bible in front of a spouse just causes so much unhelpful friction. It's just not worth it. Imagine what that's like for some people. Most of us can read a Bible at home with great joy with the others in our home. It's not the reality for everyone. Uh, Hospitality can be harder. It's not that easy necessarily to bring people back to our home. It's not always that easy to respond to hospitality. Uh, Giving can be challenging. You don't have the same desire maybe to give to the work of the Lord. That can be a real challenge and it needs real wisdom for the person involved. And of course, parenting complexities, particularly for younger people, when there is one who's pulling in one direction, one another. Think about Sunday. Our children are going to go to the football game or come to church. Real tension. Just a few examples of some of the things that have been shared with me recently, which have really helped me to see the reality, for some people at least, of being married to an unbeliever. But of course, I don't want to make it out that every marriage where there's a believer and unbeliever is just misery and it's always difficult. Some marriages are very happy. Some marriages flourish, but many don't. It's more just a case of being aware. But as we come to a close and to a time of prayer, I guess as we reflect on this little mini-series of uh, commitment to God in our relationships, whether we're married or single, divorced, remarried, widowed, separated, all of us, to have relationships that honor God and flourish before God, all of us need the Spirit of God to be alive in us, and the grace of God to be at work in us, don't we? We want to be a church where all relationships can flourish, where we can really support each other in them. And so as we think of the Lord Jesus, and as we come to him, because he's the God, he in he God gives us that grace. It's God the Father who gives us his spirit to help us. Let's just have a time of quiet where we can pray ourselves. For however maybe God has spoken to you through this series on relationships. Uh, the first moment will just be a moment of quiet where you can reflect on your own situation. Just bring whatever's on your heart to the Lord. And then I'm going to draw us back together and we're going to get into small groups for those who feel comfortable to do that. And pray for each other that we will be a church that ever more seeks to build each other up in the relationships that we find ourselves in, in commitment to God for his glory. Let's take a moment of quiet first on our own. Heavenly Father, as we lift our hearts before you now in the situation that we are in, whether it's currently a joyful, happy place, 
or a very difficult, painful place. We lift our hearts before you now and we pray that the Spirit of God would be alive in us, helping us to be faithful in the situation that we're currently in. And we pray that the grace of God would be alive in us to enable us to honor our Savior. Pray for us as a church, Lord, that we would take seriously the responsibility we have to each other to support and nurture all the different relationships we have within the church, the joyful ones and the broken and painful ones. Help us to increasingly see our lives in the corporate way that the New Testament paints the church, not us looking after ourselves and our own hearts, but together looking after each other and one another's hearts. And Lord, where there is brokenness, where there is shame, where there's regret, where there's silent suffering that nobody sees, where there's pain, we pray that your grace and your spirit would bring healing, even in this moment now as we pray. Where we've made mistakes and we've not honoured you, where in our own wisdom we've trusted our own judgment and not the judgments of the God who made us we ask for your forgiveness and we pray that you would help us to be a church that evermore seeks to be one that uh, encourages each other in our relationships that we might be in the different relationships that we're in in a way that honors you and puts the Lord Jesus first and so we thank you for your grace that picks us up when we fall we thank you for your spirit that encourages us and gives us your peace. And we pray all these things now in the name of Jesus. Amen.